I will make you a map of a journey. A journey into the heart of patriotism. I will show you its longitude and latitude. Its rivers and mountains and plains. I will etch its contours with tears and blood and the well-trodden lines of stories often heard. Irish men and Irish women, in the name of God and of the dead generations from which she receives her old tradition of nationhood, Ireland through us summons her children to her flag and strikes for her freedom. In the name of God and of the dead generations. Shot in the stonebreaker's yard, where the walls are high and blind, that none may see. Dear Mary, that did see thy firstborn son go forth to die amid the scorn of men for whom he died, receive my firstborn son into thy arms, who also hath gone out to die for men, and keep him by thee till I come to him. Dear Mary, I have shared thy sorrow, and soon shall share thy joy. Okay, you enter the jail from the front. Left-hand side, fourth cell from the end. One, two, three, four, that's number 20. Ah. Eamon Kant and Joseph Plunkett was here too. Kant uh, uh, was upstairs first at the very top, but they, they used to do that. Towards the end, they would bring them down. Make it easier to get to the execution, plus visitors. Here are the real facts. Yes. Um... So this would be 19, 18, and 17. Now, 
Then we had two more at the end down here. As we were led into the entrance hall of the jail, a soldier called out, relatives of Daly to be shot in the morning. The room, lit by a flickering naked gaslight, had once been whitewashed, but now looked grey and dirty. Up what seemed to be endless stairs running up the centre of a big hall, then along a corridor to a cell with the number 66 on a tin or metal tab at the side of the door. On the ground floor, on the left-hand side, at the far end of the central hall. And of course the whole of the jail was in darkness because the gasworks had failed during the rising, during the fighting, so... In darkness, except for the light of the lantern along some corridors and up an iron stairs to the cells on the second floor of a large hall. Uh, yeah, we're standing in the main hall here in the prison. Um, it's the East Wing and it was officially opened in 1862. And as you come in from the actual jail itself, the front door of the jail, when you're standing with your back to the spiral staircase at the front of the East Wing and looking down, very front of the horseshoe shape, on the left-hand side, on the ground floor, the very first cell in, cell number 17, belonged to Con Colbert. And right next door to Con Colbert was Michael Mallon. Con was lying on the floor with a blanket over him. Here are the real facts. Yes. So second in, number 18, was Michael Mallon. We rushed to him and twined our arms around him, surrounded by soldiers with their bayonets fixed. A table with the stump of a candle. A chair... And on the floor, a ground sheet. And then number 19, third cell in, on the left-hand side on the ground floor. Um, Colbert Malin and number 19 was Sean Houston. In absolute darkness and empty, except for a bucket and a sack on the floor. And then number 20, the fourth cell in from the left, ground floor, number 20 belonged to Eamon Kant. Now we know that Eamon Kant, as well as being in cell 20, had also been in cell 88. One soldier holding a lighted candle in the cell with them. He was crying. Now, just unlock this here. Um, Michael O'Hanrahan, we're standing in the middle of the stairs now, and if you look up to your left, the second floor, near enough to the spiral stairs, you can see there his name is still there. That's Michael O'Hanrahan, and that's where he was held. And right beside Michael O'Hanrahan there, on the straight section of the, the cell block, was Edward Daly. And Edward Daly was in cell number 66, and Michael O'Hanrahan was in cell 67. He asked me, when I heard the volleys fired the following morning, would I say a Hail Mary for their departing souls? I said, of course I will. Yes. Yes. To the bewildered, the exhausted, the dying. I have met them at close of day, coming with vivid faces from counter or desk among grey 18th century houses. I have passed with a nod of the head or polite meaningless words or have lingered a while and said polite meaningless words and thought before I had done of a mocking tale or a jibe to please a companion around the fire at the club, being certain that they and I but lived where motley is worn. All changed changed utterly. A terrible beauty is born. Mm -hmm. 
The first man to be shot will be brought out at 3.45 a.m., facing the firing party of one officer and 12 men at 10 paces distant. The rifles of the firing party will be loaded by other men behind their backs, one rifle with a blank cartridge and 11 with four. And the firing party will be told that this is the arrangement. And no man is to know which rifle is loaded with blank. There will be four firing parties who will fire in turn. Yes, the chapel in Kilmainham Jail. We are now in the chapel. Wooden floors. Altar to the left. Altar here to the um, left in the little alcove, and then the seats behind us here. Yes. The real facts. The true story. James Lawler. James Lawler. He made it with the assistance of a fellow inmate, about 14 years of age, who was imprisoned here also in 1882. Serving a sentence for the theft of the cartoon. Large and engraved on the back. The chapel is best known and for the one wedding ceremony that took place here. That was in 1960. One of the leaders of the rebellion of that year, Joseph Plunkett, was married to Grace Gifford here just hours before Joseph the Stonebreaker's Yard, where the walls are high and blind, that none may see. They had planned to marry before the rebellion, on the 23rd of April, to be precise. Yes. She came to the jail on the 3rd of May at 6 p.m. She did not see him till 11.30 in the chapel when they were married. They were not allowed to speak. The couple were married here by candlelight just before midnight on the 3rd of May. They would just have had some candles flickering on the altar rails and the young couple standing here together. Yes, it was by candlelight. The wedding ceremony itself was conducted by candlelight. It was aimed at a bearer of the nation went on to be teach up the president of Ireland and actually dismantled the gas during the rebellion in an effort to prevent an explosion. So a British officer stood beside him, the cannon through the ceremony, also acted as witness. Four hours later, and that same officer had to order the execution of Joseph Plunkett in the yard of the prison. He was handcuffed. And so they undid the handcuffs and he stood in front of the altar with grace. And on the back wall there, soldiers were um, lining the walls and they held their bayonets. Never 
she thought she would never see him again. A bit of flickering flame. The young couple, very, very brief ceremony. And then um, Grace would have been taken out the back door behind us, the main door to the chapel. And I presume they took Joseph just back to his cell that way. She went to bed at 1.30 and was wakened at 2 by a policeman bearing a letter from the prison commandant asking her to visit Joseph Plunkett. And she says how they went into the cell. Joseph was already in his cell. He was wearing filthy bandages because um, he had just had an operation on his throat. Remember, he had glandular TB. Um, He had not had an opportunity to change the bandages. He had worn them right throughout Easter week in the GPO. So she was saying goodbye. The soldiers were in there at the cell. One of them held the candle, and another one, I I believe he was a sergeant, he had his watch, and he was checking his watch. And he said to her at one stage, your 10 minutes is now up. And she then had to leave her husband and be taken out from the prison. Her husband was executed at half past three. Hearts with one purpose alone through summer and winter seem enchanted to a stone to trouble the living stream. The horse that comes from the road, the rider, the birds that range from cloud to tumbling cloud, minute by minute they change. A shadow of cloud on the stream changes minute by minute. A horse hoof slides on the brim and a horse plashes within it. The long-legged moorhens dive, and hens to moorcocks call. Minute by minute they live, the stones in the midst of all. They struck at Easter 1916 on the streets of Dublin and proclaimed for the public. British reinforcements brought the rebellion to an end within a week. West Wing, the old part of the jail, down the stone stairs, along the corridor, and out. The stonebreaker's yard a stone's throw away. Some of the more significant leaders were held in cells along this corridor prior to their executions. Their last night on this earth. Just prior to their executions in the stonebreaker's yard. The stonebreaker's yard where the walls are high and blind, that none may see. In this particular corridor here, many of the men who were executed in Kilmaine were detained. Held before their execution. Patrick Pierce, probably the most renowned figure of the 1916 rebellion, he was commander-in-chief of the Irish Republican Brotherhood and president of the Provisional Irish Republic, and as such, he was the very first of the leaders to be executed here in the jail. He began the whole Easter week fighting by standing in front of the GPO, where he read the 1916 proclamation. Um, He's also the man who surrendered to Brigadier General Lowe at the end of the uprising. Um, Basically, the men had had a council of war in Moore Street, and they realized that too many innocent people, innocent civilians, were actually being killed by the rising. In fact, when you read the, the casualty list, there were 40 women and 20 children killed in 1916. Yes, it's something that you don't, you really don't think about until you see them there in front of you in black and white. Here are the real facts. The walls are very thick. 
Silence. When they're actually bringing Willie Pierce here to the jail, he heard the gunfire that took his elder brother's life. In the stonebreaker's yard, where the walls are high and blind that none may see. Yes, these are the real facts. The men would have been brought up here on their own with their British soldiers' escorts. So they would have been brought up and put into their cells. And then the executions took place very early in the morning, around 3.45. There wasn't any daylight saving, and they weren't at standard European time at that time in 1916. Therefore, at 3.45 in the morning, it was light enough to carry out the executions. Willie said, Oh, mother, you have come. A terrible thing happened here last night. I was brought across the yard. When we came to a gate, the man with me knocked. And the answer we got was, you are too late. On the minute, the spirit in me grew strong. I never shed a tear. There were seven men there and one officer. They had candles in their hands. I spoke to Willie and said, never mind, my boy. You will soon be with Pat. Tell him that mother will be braver than ever and that she will carry her cross. That was her second and supreme sacrifice. Two cells down from that again to my left, just some of you be on your right. Read the cell there from Michael Mallon. Michael Mallon was two cells down. The other side pierced the cell, one near the window there, held Michael Mallon. Now, he commanded a group of socialists, the Irish Citizen Army, and he held the Stevens Green area. Across the river from the General Post Office. He wrote to his wife. The night before he died, he wrote, My darling wife, pulse of my heart this is the end of all things earthly sentence of death has been passed and a quarter to four tomorrow the sentence will be carried out by shooting and so must Irishmen pay for trying to make Ireland a free nation God's will be done I am prepared but oh my darling if only you and the little ones were coming too if we could all reach heaven together and he asked her to pray to pray for all the souls who died in the fight, Irish and English. Opposite him, in there on the trellis, there was actually a guard room there, his second in command was there, Countess Martin. Which, uh, she was one of hundreds of women who took part in the rise, but because of her rank and prominence, she was sentenced to be shot. Constance Markovich. If you just turn around there, you can see Countess Markovich, also here in the 1916 corridor. Um, again, like De Valera, she had been sentenced to death. But at the end of the day, especially after the Germans had executed the nurse, Edith Cavell, and there was a huge public outcry that they would execute a woman, and the British did not want to make the same mistake. And so the Countess was reprieved. Now, she actually said in the fighting that she found it extremely exciting, running around the green, tackling with any sniper that was particularly objectionable. Now, she too was sentenced to death for her involvement in that rebellion. However, it was later commuted to life imprisonment based on the fact that she was a woman, probably one of the first major cases of positive sex discrimination. However, it is actually said that Countess Markovich was outraged by this because she wanted to be treated as equal to her fellow comrades. Sent instead to prison in England and reprieved a year later. The name, by the way, um, she acquired through marriage. She married a Polish count. But she herself was from the west of Ireland and she had her death sentence commuted to a term of life in prison. In actual fact, like many others, um, 
She was released on a general amnesty from prison in England in 1917. Here are the real facts. Yes. There's a cell by the window, just beginning the roll. Joseph Mary Plunkett, son of a papal count, military planner of the Rising, married to Grace Gifford in the chapel in Kilmainham Jail by candlelight, surrounded by British soldiers. I see his blood upon the rose, and in the stars the glory of his eyes. His body gleams amid eternal snows, his tears fall from the skies. I see his face in every flower. The thunder and the singing of the birds are but his voice, and carven by his power, rocks are his written words. All pathways by his feet are worn. His strong heart stirs the ever-beating sea. His crown of thorns is twined with every thorn. His cross is every tree. So this is where Thomas McDonough's cell was? Yes. Just beyond William Pearson, the cell right next to his held Thomas McDonough. McDonough was one of the seven signatories for the proclamation. He was a colleague of Pierce's. He taught French and English in the school and died with him on the morning of the third. He said he was ready to die. He said he thanked God that he die in so holy a cause. At dawn, 3.30 a.m., the 3rd of May. And then Tom Clark, the old Fenian, the jailbird aged beyond his years. In that cell there... In that cell there, he told his wife, Kathleen, a young woman he loved very much, that he was actually glad to die the following day because the idea of any more time spent a prisoner in a place like this was too difficult for him. He was the oldest. He was actually the eldest of the leaders to be executed after the rebellion. At the age of 58, he'd already spent 15 years in prisons dotted throughout Britain for revolutionary activity. The majority of his time there was spent in solitary confinement. I am full of pride, my love. Uh, you can see it there, it would be virtually what it was like for him. Um, they're very small tiny windows at the back and we know that his wife Kathleen was allowed to come in here to say goodbye to him um, just before his execution and Kathleen was pregnant and later unfortunately her child was stillborn. They had three other sons. He wrote a very short last letter to, um, to his wife Kathleen and at the very end he finishes by saying I'm full of pride my love because he knew that they had they had 
had their chance. They had tried one last time. Uh, 58 years old, he had signed the proclamation first. And the story is that the other men, especially Thomas McDonough, and we can see Thomas McDonough's cell. It's just down the corridor here on the left from Tom Clark. But Thomas McDonough is meant to have said, if Thomas Clark doesn't sign at first, Thomas McDonough isn't going to sign at all because they all held Tom Clark, um, the old Fenian, in such huge respect and, uh, and honour. So he was actually given the great honour of signing at first. In the name of God and of the dead generations, they went. One by one, along the corridor. Down the stone stairs. Back again towards the door here. out to the stonebreaker's yard the stones throw away where the walls are high and blind that none may see After each prisoner has been shot, a medical officer will certify that he is dead, and his body will be immediately removed to an ambulance, with a label pinned on his breast, giving his name. When the ambulance is full, it will be sent to Arbor Hill Detention Barracks, entering by the gate at the Garrison Chapel. A party there will put the bodies close alongside one another in the grave now being done. Cover them thickly with quicklime, ordered, and commence filling in the grave. One of the officers with this party is to keep a note of the position of each body in the grave, taking the name from the label. A priest will attend for the funeral service. Pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Here are the real facts. Podrick Pierce, Thomas Clark, and Thomas McDonough. The first to be executed, Podrick Pierce, Thomas Clark, and Thomas McDonough, were taken down here separately in the early hours of the 3rd of May. They were taken down to where that cross now stands. Their hands were tied behind their backs. A white cross was placed over their hearts, and they were blindfolded. Twelve British soldiers lined along the doorway forming the firing squad. Six kneeling on one knee and six standing. Podrick Pierce was the first. Podrick Pierce was the first, the commander-in-chief. When we come to this yard, we're once again at the front area of the main jail. At the other side of that wall is the entrance door. And to reach it, you crossed a small forecourt. And for many years in the early history of the prison, that was the public hanging place for Kilmain jail. Many years later, hangings declined. In 1865, the last public hanging took place in front of Kilmain. 
But in the years before, many people escaped the gallows by instead being given transportation sentences. Thousands of people left Ireland for uh, Australia in those days, including many from Kilmainham Jail, because this was the holding centre for all the prisons in Ireland. Prisoners were brought here, they were lodged in Kilmainham until they could be put on board the convict ships. The first three men were Patrick Pierce, Thomas Clark, and Thomas McDonough. Thomas McDonough. He received the last rites of his church with the utmost reverence from a priest who was his friend. He knelt for a long time in prayer on the bare floor of his cell in Kilmainham Jail with the crucifix clasped in his hands. Podrick Pierce, Tom Clark and Thomas McDonough were the first to come to this yard. The executions began on the 3rd of May with Porrick Pierce, Thomas Clark and Thomas McDonough. Started on the 3rd, Patrick Pierce, the leader of the Rising, Thomas Clark, the eldest of the leaders, Thomas McDonough. Joseph Clunkett, Edward Daly, Michael O'Hanrahan and Willie Pierce. Executed here on the 4th of May. Joseph Plunkett, Edward Daly, Michael O'Hanrahan and Willie Pierce. Joseph Plunkett, Edward Daly, Michael O'Hanrahan and Willie Pierce. On the second morning, Joseph Plunkett, Edward Daly, Michael O'Hanrahan and Willie Pierce died. Here are the real facts. As I shook his hand for the last time, I felt intensely all that was meant by marching out blindfolded to his death. Such a gentle, noble, brave young Irishman. On the 4th of May, Joseph Plunkett, Edward Daly, Michael O'Hanrahan and William Pierce. And William Pierce. The 4th of May, Joseph Plunkett, who had been married in the Catholic chapel, Edward Daly, Michael O'Hanrahan, William Pierce, Patrick Pierce's brother. The 5th of May, John McBride. No fine talk, no heroics. A distinguished tranquility that came from his nobility of soul and his faith. Nothing more. John McBride on the 5th of May. Con Colbert, Eamon Kant, Michael Mallon and Sean Houston. Executed here on the 8th of May. Con Colbert, Eamon Kant, Michael Mallon and Sean Houston on the 8th of May. They were shot on the 8th of May. The prisoner stiffens and expands his chest. Then quickly a silent signal a loud volley, and the body collapses in a heap. One execution on the 5th of May. On the 8th of May, Con Colbert, Eamon Cash, Michael Mallon, and Sean were executed. On the 5th of May. And on the 5th of May, John McBride. On the 8th of May, Con Colbert, Eamon Cash, Michael Mallon, and Sean Houston. I stooped to take the crucifix which he was bearing in his hands, and I saw that it was spattered with blood. The 8th of May. The 8th of May, Con Colbert, Eamon Kant, Michael Mallon, Sean Houston. And the executions at Kilmainham finished for 1916 on the 12th of May with Sean McDermott and James Connolly. James Connolly, the Scottish trade unionist. He'd actually been shot during the fighting of Easter Week and was dying from his wounds. Nonetheless, he was sentenced to death was taken from Dublin Castle through those very doors at the end and to where that solitary cross now stands he was tied to a chair as he could not stand by himself and it is there where he was executed. Uh, He was asked by his doctor only an hour or so before his execution to pray for him and the soldiers who were about to take his life and James Connolly replied I pray for all brave men who do their duty according to their lights because he was a soldier just as they were. You could see that they were just doing a soldier's job.
two black crosses grow from the ground in the stonebreaker's yard. On Connolly's, alone at one end of the yard, white plastic rosary beads dance in the breeze, a celebration, a prayer. Here are the real facts. He was dying with gangrene and with the whole result of his wound. And they actually thought that if they brought Connolly from the gate facing us, right down to the first cross we were talking about, where the other 13 men were shot, he would be jarred and injured and hurt on the trip from the gate down to the cross. So to actually spare him that extra pain, they put a chair right by the gateway. That's why the other cross is here. A chair right by the gateway and James Connolly was not able to stand. So he was put sitting in his chair facing us there beside the gate for his execution. And um, the doctor who was attending him had come with him in the ambulance. And he was here just at the last moment and he was able to go up to James Connolly as the execution, the firing squad were preparing. And I would imagine the firing squad stood just where we are here in the middle. And Connolly said, Sir, I will pray for all men who do their duty according to their lights. Here are the real facts. Yes. So he was carried... So he was carried off the ambulance on a stretcher and he was tied into a chair and he was executed sitting down. He had to be tied to it and then he was shot. He was shot. They were shot. They faced the rifles of the grey of dawn in the stonebreaker's yard where we have now arrived. Too long a sacrifice can make a stone of the heart. Oh, when may it suffice? That is heaven's part. Our part to murmur name upon name as a mother names her child when sleep at last has come on limbs that had run wild. What is it but nightfall? No, no, not night, but death. Was it needless death after all? For England may keep faith for all that is done and said. We know their dream, enough to know they dreamed and are dead. And what if excess of love bewildered them till they died? I write it out in a verse, Macdonough and Macbride and Connolly and Pierce, now and in time to be, Wherever green is worn, are changed, changed utterly. A terrible beauty is born. <laughs> 